You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, this is uh, Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. We have another special guest this week. We've got Jonathan Schaefer. Jonathan Schaefer is uh, the co-founder and managing director of Fortis Green Renewables, which is a private equity fund located in Kigali, Rwanda. Jonathan, I'm going to read your bio here in a second. I'm just going to let you go from there because you have such an interesting story. But to start, he spent 15 years of investment and operational experience in sub-Saharan Africa and in the United States, started and led three companies in Africa, totaling more than $215 million of invested capital. You're the former senior vice president of CNL's $4 billion alternative investment platform, including private equity and pl- private credit, co-founder and CIO of Common Good Capital, focused on values-aligned investments across the globe, and then an MBA from the Yale School of Management. So before we get to Fortis Green, because I think that's an interesting investment opportunity and, and fund that you guys have put together, I want to just hear about your history on the continent and, and what brought you and your family over to Rwanda. Well, first of all, it's great to be with both of you this morning. Yeah, so my Africa story started back in 2008. So I'm a private equity investor by background. Started my career here in the United States, middle market private equity out of Washington, D.C. Had a great start to my career. But as the, what we now call the Great Recession of 2008 and onward, started to show its its teeth, so to speak, in late 2007, early 2008, it felt like a time to do something different. My wife and I had a lot of aspirations to spend time overseas before we had kids. And so through a much longer story connected with a very large family office out of Ohio, and you know, they were looking for someone to move to West Africa to start an investment strategy on behalf um, of their family. And they mentioned Sierra Leone and I said, South America sounds great. Sierra Leone's not in South America. I was completely naive. I had no idea what I was doing, what I was talking about. I was 26 years old, thought I knew a lot more than I did, but. As things worked out, we ended up moving to Sierra Leone in 2008. So just about a month and a half before Lehman Brothers fell, to not be uh, crazy timing, you know, to get out of the U.S. market. But moved to Sierra Leone in 2008 with a goal of setting up a hold co and investment strategy for this family office in Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone, just for context, yeah, it's somewhere between the fifth and fifteenth poorest country in the world, but it is beautiful. People are amazing. And so planned to be there a year, ended up being there for seven. We lived there for about two and a half years. And then I commuted back and forth from the States to, uh, to Sierra Leone for, I guess that'd be what, five and a half additional years. Um, we ended up, um, in, uh, investing close to $100 million, mostly value add manufacturing, agro-processing, highly labor intensive kind of job creation activities. We set up and ran the first value-add manufacturer in the country that operated post its own war, which ended in 2001. It was a fruit juice concentrate manufacturing business. We employed about 150 people, bought produce from about 4,000 small farmers. We had a coffee and cocoa processor. We had the first special economic zone in West Africa, a variety of things. And then Ebola hit in 2014. And that, as you can imagine, actually this whole COVID pandemic has been kind of deja vu uh, for us who were in West Africa, because you had this same situation, obviously Ebola is much, even, it's even deadlier than COVID, but shut everything down. It was another war for West Africa and that is another war for Sierra Leone. I stepped away full-time uh, from African kind of activities at the end of Ebola. 
So led our businesses through that process and then stepped away, went back into traditional finance in the United States. But it was really this desire back in 2008, really, it was a very un kind of philosophically robust desire, but it was, Hey, how do I go use my skill set to make a difference in the world? You know, how do I use the talents that, that I have and, and the skills that I've acquired to not just go build orphanages and not just go build schools, but how do we use business as a tool to really make an impact in people's lives? And that term impact, impact investing wasn't a thing yet. I, I often don't really like to use the word impact because it, it comes across as this kind of soft thing, but it's really, how do we use business, make people money, but also while we're doing it, make an impact for lack of a better term on the communities in which we're operating. So that's, that's really what took us to, to Sierra Leone originally but to Africa as a whole, you know, back in 2008. So when did you get back to Africa? You came back and you went to traditional finance and you returned. And what was the, the reason for returning and, and how long have you been back? Yeah. So I'd say it was kind of a two prong, you know, decision. You know, my wife and I have, have two kids now, 10 and seven. And as we thought about how we wanted them to be raised, we had a really strong desire for them to have context and some time in Africa. And so, you know, Part of the motivation to come back was to, you know, introduce them to this lifestyle of living here in Africa. So that's kind of the first piece. The second piece was really building on the experience that we had gained for the first kind of seven plus years of working on the continent of realizing that there was massive opportunity, massive, obviously, obviously huge risk as well, but this sense that there's corruption and risk and um, disaster around every corner, you know isn't true. Those things do exist here clearly, but just like in any other market, understanding those risks, understanding the circumstances allows you to, to de-risk those things that are there in front of you, but also allows you to take advantage of opportunities. And this, and this really is the wild west. And I, and I mean that both from the positive sense, as well as from the negative sense. And so, you know, we had seen these opportunities continue to develop and wanted to put together a business to take advantage of those opportunities. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, but to bring capital to bear on some, what we think are long-term secular trends across the continent around population growth, GDP expansion, et cetera, which we can get into more later, but want to take advantage of those. Um, and so moved back to the continent, this time to East Africa, to a small country called Rwanda. Now we moved here in January of 2020. So just before a little pandemic started a handful of months later, but we moved to Rwanda, not necessarily to invest solely in Rwanda, but as a base you know, for our family and for our business. And so we've been here for now, I guess, just coming up in two and a half years. Tell us about Rwanda, the country, its history, and what it's like to live there with a family of two uh, young kids. So you can't talk about Rwanda without talking about the genocide. The genocide took place, I believe it was 28 years ago now. And you know, most folks are aware of that story. Somewhere between 800,000 and a million people died uh, over the course of 120 days. You know, one of the most horrific events uh, that we've seen in modern history. And you have a country now 13 million people, very small landmass, about, about half the size of South Carolina, that are, at least this generation, kind of irrevocably marked by the circumstances of that time in early 19, 1994. And so everything is kind of judged against where they were at that point in time. But what's transpired over those last, you know, almost 30 years is nothing short of a kind of economic mirror. You know, the country was completely demolished. Uh, infrastructure was gone. Uh, people were gone. There was a refugee crisis on multiple borders. 
But what's happened since then, you know, you've got, I think I would argue the most stable kind of political context, and there's some challenges there as well to be sure, but the most stable political context on the continent, you've got, I think I would argue, and, and, and most kind of outside commentaries, I would argue as well that you've got the safest country on the continent and you've got a rapidly growing economy. So you put all those together, it's a really great place to operate. It's a really great place to be based. You know, if I took my wife, <laughs> dropped her randomly in some part of Kigali at any time of day, I'm not lying when I say this, I would not be nervous about her being harmed. It's an extremely safe place. I travel quite a bit. And one of the reasons why we wanted to be based in Kigali was because, you know, in expectation of that travel, I want my family to be safe. And that's not the case, sadly, in other parts of the continent, but in Rwanda, you know, there's just no concerns about them, you know, as we're gone. Beautiful country, uh, land of a thousand hills is its nickname, extremely hilly as the, you know, as the name would suggest, you've got tea plantations, coffee plantations, very agriculturally based society. And so as you look out across the hills, different hues of green, Michi, you've got Lake Kivu, which is one of the East African Great Lakes. That's on the border with DR Congo on the Eastern side of the country. It's a tropical lake, beautiful place. You know, our kids live a very interesting lifestyle, right? You know, they go to a private school, private international school, friends from Kenya, Rwanda, Japan, Europe, it's that international lifestyle, but they're also able to take advantage of, of, you know, kind of all the natural things that Rwanda has to offer. There's gorillas, there's safaris, uh, you know, there's a variety of different things. So life for us is very good. <laughs> and when we talk to people about our lifestyle in Rwanda, there's oftentimes a lot of shock and surprise. You know, most people think, oh, you've left so much behind, you know, when you move from the U.S. to Africa. That's true. I mean, if I think if you went, Greg, I think you mentioned that you've never been to Africa, it would feel different to you, clearly. But it's not, it's not a hard lifestyle. We, you know, we love it. Uh, the weather is low to mid seventies, kind of all year round, sunny most of the time. Yeah, you don't need to feel too bad for us. You mentioned it's one of the most stable or if not the most stable countries on the continent. And you raise capital for projects around the continent as well, too. Yeah. You're just based in Rwanda just because you find the lifestyle there and and the security, et cetera, great for your situation. Do you think that Rwanda has sort of a reputation in the international community and is a base of operations for other people in, in your situation that are doing business on the continent? Yes. So that's increasingly happening. You know, so right now, if we think about East Africa, Nairobi is really the hub. And for obvious reasons, it's, it, it's a highly developed city in, a, uh, you know, uh, in its own right, lots happening, very metropolitan, beautiful, beautiful city, love Nairobi. And actually we are kind of choosing between Kigali and Nairobi for the base of operations. But what you're seeing is more and more people, more and more organizations moving from Nairobi to Kigali. And to be perfectly clear, Kigali has a long way to go to catch up with Nairobi, but that is starting to happen because yeah, just sadly, Nairobi does have some safety concerns. You know, it's certainly not a war zone and it's nothing that sadly American cities aren't seeing now as well, but there is, you know, there are some safety concerns in Nairobi. It's a big crowded place. And so more and more groups are moving to Kigali and that's a primary strategy of the Iranian government is to have Kigali be a hub for East Africa. And so one of those things that they're doing is they're trying to become kind of the onshore offshore hub for Africa. So they've set up a new international financial center, you know, trying to basically look at what Mauritius has done kind of as being a place for capital to coalesce and to move out into the continent. And they're trying to say, Hey, come to Rwanda, set up your hold co here, set up your fund here. A disclaimer, we are not set up in Rwanda and there's reasons for that, but I think in the future we would look at it. 
but let Rwanda be that hub for your organization, for your capital as it flows out to the rest of the continent. So let's shift to the actual operation and maybe talk a little bit about Fortiscreen. Do you want to just share what Fortiscreen is in the mission of the fund? Sure. So Fortiscreen Renewables is an investment management firm, and we're really focused on this core problem. And that is that there's 1.2 billion people in Africa today. 600 million still do not have access to electricity. Here in 2022, there are 600 million people on the continent of Africa, to say it again, that don't have access to any source of electricity. Now, that number has declined dramatically over the last 20 years. So but I guess nobody said it is there's been rapid gains over the last 20 years, but you've still got this huge gap. And the primary reason for that is that there's just not enough supply. So I most recently was in, I was based in Florida. So I use Florida as the example. So Florida has about 23 million people. Again, contrast that to Sub-Saharan Africa with 1.2 billion. The state of Florida has one third of the total power generation capacity of all of Africa, right? So you put three Floridas together with what, 69 million people, you'd have all the power that's available to the African continent. So it's mind boggling when you think about it that way. Historically though, it, I mean, it makes sense because historically there were a lot of challenges in African markets. And it wasn't, you know, there weren't that many places where you'd want to put down capital for 30, 40 years or, you know, even, even 10 years, you know, so these infrastructure projects didn't get funded. These, these power plants didn't get built. Uh, but these markets were, pro, uh, I should say, were, were liberalized, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, opening the path for private investment into power generation activities. And so that's, that's the gap that we're trying to help fill. Now, when I talk about the numbers you know, that we're investing at this point, they're still relatively small, but what we're focused on is kind of a smaller scale segment of the market. So these are projects with between, you know, 0.5 and, and, and 25 megawatts. So translate that to dollars, you know, somewhere between a million and, you know, $50 million of total project costs. That's where most of the activity is in the market today across the continent. But uh, unfortunately, because frankly, just because of the size of the projects, that's where the capital markets are frankly, least developed and least sophisticated, especially on the equity side. And so we created Forest Green Renewables and our Green Fund One to invest equity and equity-like capital, bring sophisticated, structurable, kind of tailored equity solutions to these smaller projects across the continent. And if you look at where, where the growth and productive capacity is coming from, it's largely coming from this side of the market because less susceptible corruption, right? These are smaller projects with smaller check sizes. They're not getting the same headline numbers that say a billion dollar project is going to get in pick whatever country, you know, you want to talk about. There's less complexity. So the, the probability that they're going to move forward and get executed is much, much higher. And I'll give you an example. So Sierra Leone, you know, which is where I was based before we have through a separate uh, kind of earlier entity, have an investment in a hydropower plant there that has been going through development for now 15 years. And so, you know, that's a, that is a, I think it's a $400 million project, $450 million project. It will get done at some point. It just may take 30 years. Whereas these smaller scale projects, um, you know, you can go from development to execution in a handful of years. And so that's why we like that segment of the market. That's where we, that's why we think that segment of the market has the biggest potential to ramp up capacity quickly. And so that's what we're focused. What kind of power generation do you anticipate would be the most prevalent from a go forward basis? You mentioned hydroelectricity in Sierra Leone. Is that something that you expect uh, just given the, the availability of rivers, et cetera, 
to yeah. be a very common theme going forward. We are 100% focused on renewable energy. Full transparency, I, you know, historically, I'm not a renewable energy crazy guy, right? Like, I mean, I love the fact that it's clean and I love the fact that it's long-term sustainable, but historically I wouldn't have said, you know, hey, you know, we can't invest in something else. And there's a certain population, you know, kind of from the impact space that would, that would skewer me for that. But it works out well that in this context, in most of Africa, renewable energy tends to be not only the cleanest and frankly, the most kind of uh, environmentally friendly and socially friendly way to produce power, but also tends to be the most um, economically attractive. In the context where all of your fuel, whether it be heavy fuel oil, diesel, coal is all imported because the local capacity to generate that type of uh, input is not there. That means your cost of production for that type of power is quite high. And so when you're looking at a diesel generation versus say a hydropower, which I'll get to the other technologies that we're looking at in a second, oftentimes there's no difference or the renewable energy option is much, much more attractive. And so as a result of that, you have much of the continent and especially East Africa that is making a concerted effort, a concerted push to move towards being, if not hundred percent renewable, then very, very much largely renewable energy focused over the course of the next decade. The reality is Africa is way ahead of the United States. It's way ahead of much of the rest of the world in terms of its adoption of renewable energy. And I think it's largely because of the economics of renewable energy vis-a-vis -vis traditional power options in those contexts. So for us, what are we focused on? Let's put it this way, we are technology agnostic uh, from a renewables perspective. So in our pipeline today, we're looking at uh, wind deals, solar deals, biomass and biogas deals. We're looking at geothermal and we're looking at what's called run the river hydropower. I think in this first fund, uh, my guess is probably 50%, maybe 50% plus will be, uh, will be hydropower. And just to be specifically clear, when we talk about hydropower, we're talking about something called run the river hydropower, which is different from traditional dammed hydropower projects. You know, it's what you imagine when you think of a hydropower project, it, it, it creates a big reservoir, big lake big pool of water behind that dam that creates flooding, it creates displacement, it creates a lot of challenges. It's much, much harder to get those types of projects built today for obvious reasons. It, it creates lots of issues kind of in that flood zone. So we're focused on what's called running river hydropower, which takes a stream, takes a river, it diverts a portion of that water into a channel. And that channel basically maintains the elevation of wherever it came in at. And then it maximizes the potential energy, runs it downhill at a steep at a steep uh, decline and meets back up with the main river, usually called a kilometer to two kilometers down a uh, downstream. So it doesn't create that same flooding issue that we see in traditional hydropower. You know, the river is actually cleaner at the end of the day, because we're taking out garbage, we're taking out sticks, et cetera. And then that water ends up back in the stream and everything's the same. So we really like that type of technology, but that said, it's very dependent upon the context, you know, so a wind deal in Kenya or in Ghana may be very attractive, but a wind deal in Rwanda may not be attractive depending upon the context. So all I have to say is, is I think as we continue to grow and continue to expand, we'll probably make investments across the technology landscape. I would say the one kind of defining characteristic for us though, is that we don't want to take technology risk. So we're only focused on technologies that are well-developed, well-proven and kind of across the spectrum of what I just described that, you know, you've got decades of technology experience in each of these, um, kind of generation, uh, modalities. There's really two questions that pop up while you're speaking. The first is just general risks 
associated with an infrastructure project, a run of the river hydro project in Africa yeah. versus a developed country first. And, and then just compare developing Africa to other developing parts of the world and why Africa is the bet and not maybe Southeast Asia or somewhere else. You know, on the first question, you know, the first thing you've got to get comfortable with is, do I want to be long, not only in the continent, again, because we have to step back and realize we've got, you know, 54 countries inside of this continent that we often group together and call Africa. But do I want to be long, not only on the continent, but also on this particular jurisdiction, this particular market? Do I believe from an economic perspective, there's going to be the capacity to purchase the power that I'm producing? And do I believe from a political perspective, there's going to be enough stability for that power to be able to be produced and, and purchased for the length of the contract that I'm entering into. One aside on that is that we actually believe that the energy sector is de-risked from a political risk perspective because of the fact that it's so obvious that it's not on, <laughs> right? So if the lights don't come on, constituents, the population notices that. And as a result of that, the energy sector tends to be well looked after even in context of conflict. Now, to be clear, we don't want to necessarily invest into areas where we expect there to be conflict. So we're, you know, kind of screening those out. But once you get past that, that initial screening and saying, hey, am I comfortable being long in this country overall? Then the risks looked very similar to whether or not you were developing this in Africa or in Denver, Colorado, for example. On a greenfield project that's being constructed, it really comes down to, can I actually put this hydropower plan in, in, in place for the price that we modeled this at, you know, at budget. So it really comes down to construction risk and then it's operational risk, which honestly isn't all that much different than what you would see if you were going to develop this in the United States, for example. Now, supply chains might be different. Infrastructure and logistics might be different. So you have to solve for those, but the fundamental kind of risk profile doesn't look all that much different once you get past that original screening. What does it look like from a bureaucracy standpoint from the United States relative to Africa? Is it less yeah. or more intense in, in Africa? It just depends. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it depends on which jurisdiction you're talking about. Some countries in Africa are a bear to work with. They're just very, very difficult. Bureaucratic, there's corruption. Things take a very, very long time. And there's other jurisdictions that they're relatively straightforward. You know, there's a process, you know what that process is, you follow it, and there's going to be challenges just like in a you know, kind of in any situation, but there's a process. And let me step back and say, you know, we are investors only. We are not developers, right? So we are not the groups that are in Kenya meeting with the minister of, of energy, pushing a project forward. We partner with local developers or regional international developers who are, who are on the ground, meeting with the minister of energy, meeting with the regulator, talking them through that process. Now we need to understand how those processes work. We need to have knowledge and, and and context in each of the countries that we're investing into, but we're not the ones on the ground doing that. So unfortunately, it's not a straightforward answer because the reality is that it's, it's very different, you know, from country to country. Rwanda, for example, just, you know, that's where I'm based, you know, we'll have a handful of investments there. Relatively straightforward. That doesn't mean that it always goes fast, but, you know, you know what the path is, you know what the check boxes are that you have to get. And, you know, the finish line is what the finish line is. You put that in the context of another country, you know, that might not always be the case. And so that's, those are the situations that we try to avoid unless it's very, very developed. You know, we don't want to be in a kind of a position where the finish line or the, uh, the goal line keeps getting moved on us. Those are situations that allow for cost overruns, for delays, for, uh, for corruption, you know, kind of extreme cases. 
But by and large, in the markets that we will invest in, the process is known, published, and it's followed for the most part. And these contracts are typically, there's an off-taker for this energy that's being developed through a run-of-the-river hydro plant. And, uh, and that off-taker is generally a, either a municipality or a country or an energy company. Is that right? Yeah. So let me split the market into two broad sections. You've got what's called IPPs. So these are independent power producers that are selling to a regulated utility, right? That's what you're describing. You're describing a, a context where you're selling either to a national utility a regional utility or to some extent this happens, but it's not very common, some type of local municipal utility. Those tend to be 25, 20 to 30 year contracts, almost always priced in USD and almost always connected to US inflation. So those are really interesting contracts for us, long-term cash flow potential. You know, that would probably make up 70 to 80% of our first fund is that type of a off taker. The other side of the market is something called CNI, and that's that's commercial industrial. So that's selling to exactly what that what that sounds like. That's selling to large commercial and industrial off-takers. It's selling to the Heineken Brewery, the Coca-Cola bottler, it's selling to mining companies, et cetera. These are companies that are either looking to A, go green, B, don't have access to the grid, and so want to have access to a stable, non-kind of diesel generator source of power, or they have access to the grid and the grid is unreliable and they want to supplement that. And so let's say between 20 and 30% of the portfolio will fit in that bucket. There, that's a huge growth opportunity for the continent. That's not going to be the focus of this first fund for us. It's a different type of risk, but there's some really interesting opportunities there for us that we want to incorporate into this fund. But that's broadly kind of the two sections of the market. And we're primarily focused on that grid-connected IPP space. So talk to me how you think about so these are obviously long-term contracts and in yeah. disputes that come up in the on the continent obviously there's different jurisdictions and different laws with each jurisdiction but how do you think about potential contract disputes that come up and, and that's something you generally don't worry about in the United States because there's a process a legal process to go through if there is dispute what is the difference if any where you're operating yeah so i mean first of all there is legal process right so there is courts there are uh, you know there's international arbitration processes that are followed but before you even get to that point, let's just step back. In most cases, these contracts will have some type of sovereign guarantee. So the government of that particular country is saying, hey, I'm putting my stamp of guarantee and approval on this contract such that if there are disputes, if there are failures to pay, we will honor the obligations on this contract. Now, that's not 100% of the contracts, but that's a lot. That's step one. The second piece is that a large percentage of these projects have debt financing that are coming from quasi-public, quasi-private pools of capital that are closely linked to international countries, right? So uh, these are called DFIs, Development Finance Institutions. You know, so we have the DFC, which is the old OPIC in the United States. There's Sweat Fund, Nord Fund. There's these different, you know, capital institutions, primarily out of Europe, that are primarily focused on, on providing debt to these types of projects. And so there's legal ramifications if there's issues there on, on those contracts, but there's also diplomatic ramifications if there's issues on those contracts. So that's a second layer reduction of protection. The third would be um, insurance, right? So the World Bank and others offer political risk insurance. They offer all types of different kind of insurance packages to mitigate some of the potential risks there. But then the fourth piece is that there are processes to deal with these types of disputes. Um, you know, Kenya is an example right now 
where um, about a year ago, the government kind of said, hey, look, our power sector is a little bit out of control. We've got some contracts that are out of whack here. We've got some things we need to sort through here. So we're going to put everything on pause, right? And so there have been lawsuits. There have been challenges from both sides. And as far as we can tell, the process has actually gone quite smoothly. You know, the largest wind project in Africa is in Kenya. The Kenyan government came to that asset owner and said, hey, you know, we'd like to reduce your tariff. And they said, well, we would not like to reduce our tariff. <laughs> and not only that, but you have a contract that says you're going to pay us this tariff. And so that hasn't gone to court. But as of today, the government's honored that. And they said, yep, no, we understand that. We, you know, we wanted to see if there was some way that we could work something out. And, and they may do some type of, you know, kind of trimming around the edges. But you don't see a lot of circumstances where you've got large-scale legal disputes or these types of contracts. And I think a lot of that goes back to the fact that power is inherently political. And this is a broad generalization, but most, you know, at the, 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 and this is in my view, right? So in my view, most political administrations across the continent are judged, among other things, but two broad metrics. What's the job situation? You know, are jobs being created, uh, in, and especially for youth? And then what's the power situation? Is it better or worse? than when this administration came in. And so as a result of that, that segment, as I mentioned earlier, that segment of the market, the power sector has been, let's not say coddled because that's too soft, but has been looked after and supported because countries know that international capital is required for that access level, for the surety of supply of power to continue to increase over time. So that's kind of the way I think about that bucket of risk. As an investor, that's, and this goes back to my previous question and we, we got off track, but I want to just think about this from an investor's perspective, who's trying to allocate capital yeah. to emerging markets and Africa, you mentioned half the population is without power. And that is a major macro theme for the continent that each year, more and more people have access to power. There's a supply shortage, et cetera. This must be going on globally in the emerging markets, you know, in other parts of the world. What else in Africa do you see as, as a, a major theme yeah. as, as investors look for the next 10 or 20 years? I mean, the biggest one is demographics and population growth. So just a couple stats for you. So today, 17% of the globe lives in Africa. Between now and 2050, so over the next 30 years, more than 50% of all incremental population growth will take place in, in Africa. So fast forward to 2050, the expectation is that around 30% plus of the globe's population will be in Africa. So, I mean, just, just think about that for a second. Again, you're, you're doubling the share of the global population that will be in Africa. And so what does that look like? That looks like rapid population growth. It looks like a very young population. You know, you've got average ages in the, in the low teens, as opposed to, you know, European and Asian contexts where you've got an aging and declining population. You've got a rapidly expanding population in Africa. Now that creates opportunities. It also creates risks. Right. So if that population is not able to access jobs, that population is not able to access power, food, et cetera, that creates lots of challenges. Uh, but we see the opportunistic side of that. And we say, look, these are long-term kind of secular trends. This is not going to change anytime soon. And so what that's going to require for these countries to continue to prosper is going to be access to, it's going to be access to power, it's access to housing, it's access to all these different things. We've decided to focus on the power side of the equation. Because today, again, as we mentioned, you've got 600 million people that don't have access to power. 
even for the folks who do have access to it, their per capita demand or, or, or I should say per capita consumption of power is relatively low compared to the rest of the world. So that will continue to expand as GDP per capita grows. And as access, as the number of connections increase, the need for power will continue to grow as well. So you've got that, that population demographic story. Then you've also got the economic growth story as well. So, you know, we'll use East Africa as the example again, and that's Kenya, that's Rwanda, Tanzania, and Uganda. Pre-COVID, that region grew at almost 7% per year on an average annual basis for the decade ended in 2019, right? So almost 7% per year, fastest growing region in the world. Africa as a whole was the, was the second fastest growing continent behind Asia. And that story, I think, will continue to be told. Even during COVID, I don't remember the exact stat off the top of my head, but East Africa, I think, still grew at about 0.5% in 2020 and then bounced back quite strongly in 2021. I mean, I mean, Rwanda grew at 10.2% in 2021. Kenya grew, I think, about 7.1% in 2021. So you're continuing to see that growth story happen. Now, you know, there's challenges, to be clear. But when we look at the world, when we look at emerging markets, you know, in terms of where do we think the most potential for long-term growth is, you know, we look at Africa. And so I think the challenge is you got to pick those segments of the market at the right time that are mature enough to accept that international capital, to be able to handle it and to be able then to return capital back to investors. There's a lot of money flowing into venture capital in Africa right now. Valuations are off the charts. I mean, I think that's a very interesting space. That's not my expertise. So that's not, that's one of the reasons why we're not investing there. But I also think that it's, it's still an unproven space, you know, in terms of exit opportunities, you know, for those types of investors coming in, in, in early stage businesses, it's not to say there's not opportunities there, but there's definitely still some questions. Whereas you look at more of the infrastructure plays, the return profile is different. You know, we're looking at kind of high teens, low twenties, as opposed to kind of that, you know, VC returns of 30% plus, but we believe there's a more well-worn path of capital entry and capital exit. So, you know, I got a little off track there, but if we think about, you know, what are the two big things that we're looking at with Africa, it's population and demographics and it's GDP expansion. So you're looking at this through the lens of capitalism in terms of you're trying to make you and your partners a solid return greater than they would be able to achieve in a commensurate investment in a developed market like the United States. You mentioned high teens or low 20% targeted annual return. So that's great. And But you also mentioned, and it's obvious, that, that the sub-Saharan African population is 1.2 billion, and half of those individuals don't have access to power. So that in terms of you earning a higher rate of return, that's a great thing. But there's also the potential that you bring power to a population that doesn't have power presently. Can you talk about the... So we talked about the capitalistic motivations, but talk about some of the more altruistic benefits that are a consequence of what you guys are doing. Yeah. And I should mention, and I kind of breezed past this when I was describing what we do, I have very little, let's just say no interest in making money for the sake of making money personally, myself, money's important, money matters. But for me personally, I only want to be involved with things that a make money, right? I mean, that's, that's a given but then have the potential to have a positive impact on people's lives. And so if we think about from a power perspective, why do I think that checks that box? It's really two reasons. You've got the environmental aspects of, of the renewable energy story, which, which we've touched on briefly, but then, and this is really what gets me fired up and excited is, you know, I, I, as somebody who's been, you know, let's look at it from two perspectives. One is the business side and two is the personal side. As somebody who's been working on the continent for over a decade, 
has run businesses, manufacturing businesses that require power to operate and have seen the negative implications of not having access to steady supplies of power. I can firsthand speak to the power of steady access and steady supplies of power to the potential to expand economic activity and expand wealth creation for businesses and their owners. And that's obviously across the world, but clearly here in Africa, that's on the business side. On the personal side, you know, there's, there's all kinds of studies. There's tons of data out there that would show that while it's not a panacea, the impact on educational outcomes, health outcomes, economic outcomes from power being introduced into communities are substantial. I mean, if, again, we just think about some, some regular kind of everyday things, if we go to a hospital for care, that hospital doesn't have access to a steady supply of power and it can only do surgeries, say on Tuesdays and Thursdays, which sometimes is the case, that's clear. You're going to have a negative implication. If a student can't study after the sun goes down, or if he or she is studying, it's using a, you know, kerosene lamp, there's negative educational outcome implications as well as health outcome implications in that context as well. So we believe that what we're doing is inherently impactful, um, introducing power, I should say, adding supply to the local context is inherently impactful. Doing that in a renewable and sustainable way, we think is even better. We as a fund manager, this is not from the fund itself, but we as the fund managers are taking 10% of our proceeds, revenues, not profits, and then kind of magnifying the impact of that power generation in the communities in which we operate. I'll be honest, we haven't fully got this sorted out yet, but we're moving in this direction. And it will probably look like, you know, literacy programs and healthcare programs in these local communities. So taking the proceeds that we get as the fund manager and then magnifying the impact of that, you know, the power that's being generated there locally. That's awesome. Yeah. So, uh, and, and you mentioned at first, this is before we started, we clicked record, but your first stay in Africa was in Sierra Leone and the per capita yeah. GDP was, you mentioned like $325 a year or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's today. It's, yeah, it's roughly in that range. It's a low 300s. Yeah. Right. So it's less than a dollar a day the population is making, but just by adding power, right. right. So, so just by adding power to a, a region or a a specific country allows people to actually have jobs that could potentially pay more. So I I think there's, you mentioned the sort of like explicit benefits of hospitals, et cetera, but I definitely understand the potential from a wage generation standpoint, et cetera. So I think that's fabulous. Yeah. So I want to talk about just as a, how to comp this from an investor's perspective. So I think, you know, making money and doing good at the same time. Honestly, I think that capitalism is when used right, when cronyism isn't introduced to capitalism, can bring, it has brought the world out of poverty all over the globe, all over the developed world and, and the emerging world. And so this sort of mission that you're on is aligned with what capitalism originally was intended to do. I want to talk about just from a, so somebody that's saying, look, I can invest in an infrastructure project in the United States. I'm more financially driven. Why would I take the risk of investing in an infrastructure project in Africa? As you model these out, and obviously these are pro forma returns, what is a return difference between a a U.S. domicile project versus one that you're looking at in Rwanda? Yeah, that's a good question. It's one that we look at quite a bit. But if you take the same stage, and I should mention that we're investing in kind of later stage development projects as well as operational assets. We're not looking to take 
very early stage development risk. It's a different, it's a different risk profile. But if you kind of look at apples to apples, you know, it, it's, it's hard to triangulate it exactly, but you're probably looking at somewhere between 10 and 12% return here in the United States. And it can go down even lower, especially in Europe to kind of the six to 8% range. And so you compare that to, let's say 18 to 22% that we're modeling out across the portfolio. That's on average called, you know, 800 to a thousand basis point difference. And so the question has to be why, and part of that is risk, which is real, but I think part of that is ignorance or naivete when it comes to investing in these types of markets. And so certainly some of that Delta is, is warranted. Absolutely. But I would argue that it's not the whole, you know, thousand bips. That makes complete sense. And it's just something that's flying completely under the radar that bigger Western investors aren't really focused on. And there's a massive need there. And like I said, I mean, it's, you're doing good, but at the same time, you're being compensated for the risk that you're taking in that effort that you're making to do good for the people of sub-Saharan Africa. We're coming up on on time. And, and so I wanted to just and maybe switch away from the the investment side. You mentioned you know what it's like to live in Rwanda, but when a foreigner arrives in Kigali, and, and, I, and we watched a video of you with investors that you filmed last summer, what does a, a tourist do when they, when they come to Rwanda or other regions of Africa that you've been to? So in Rwanda specifically, we have the mountain gorillas. And so there's only, there's only one place in the world where you can see these mountain gorillas, and it's, it's in the mountain range between Congo, Uganda and Rwanda. And so it's amazing experience up in the uh, bamboo jungles on these extinct volcanoes where you go and see the gorillas. There's also a safari park with, you know, all the big five lions, rhinos, hippos, and elephants, all that kind of stuff. That's about two hours uh, from Kigali. My family and I actually love to camp there. You can actually sleep on a lake, or I should say just on the shore of a lake, and you've got hippos, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 feet from you in the water singing to you during the night. It's, it's quite an interesting experience. But look, you know, the classic Africa experiences at the safari, you know, there's a lot of countries that would claim that they're the best. I think Kenya, Maasai Mara is, is spectacular. You just, it, it's just an amazing experience to get up and close and personal with, you know, with the wildlife. But in Rwanda, Rwanda is known for its efforts, mountain gorillas. And so that's definitely the highlight in that country. Well, Jonathan, this was super interesting. I think people will find this story and your story as, as somebody that's Yale MBA, traditional finance background and and basically drop the American lifestyle to go out to Africa and, and build something. And I think it's a wonderful story and we wish you the best success. And we'd love to follow up later to hear how it's going with the, with the fund. But thank you so much for joining. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, 
Consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.